Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. We're your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today on the phone are Michelle Beeson and Sucharita Kadali, joining us to discuss the 2018 holiday season. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. So let's start with some big ideas. What are the big things that retailers need to get their head around to succeed in the 2018 holiday season as it relates to the U.S. and in Europe? Well, I'll speak for the U.S. This is Sucharita. And um, what, the good thing about e-commerce in the holiday season is that um, retailers have been to this rodeo before. And at this point in time, it really is just putting in the right promotional cadence and making sure that they have enough budget um, for their digital marketing activities. Those are the levers that they can um, adjust the most quickly and the most rapidly. Um, there's also the question about fulfillment. Every year what we face is um, too many orders being stuffed into the system and then orders getting very late in December. Um, even orders that you may have placed in early December you know, don't arrive on time. Um, so retailers do need to perhaps um, think, around, think about some of the messaging around, you know, can they move more of the promotions earlier or not promise um, certain delivery dates um, unless they're, they're fairly confident of that. Those are, I think, the, the most important things to worry about. What I will say, though, one other thing is uh, lots of questions about tariffs and what the, the new tariffs are going to do for e-commerce. Um, and interestingly, for a lot of the mass merchants, um, they have locked in deals, and um, the brands that are upstream from them have been placing pretty substantial orders. So the inventory backlog has been on the brand side because they were anticipating these tariffs. So I I don't actually expect the impact, the cost impact to customers um, to happen um, for the most part until 2019. Wow. And I can say a lot of that, um, you know, applies in Europe, but also in the context that, you know, retailers have been grappling with a big change to their holiday season pattern since Black Friday and Cyber Monday have really largely been adopted by the UK and certainly more prominent across Europe, which just completely changes the traditional holiday sales cycle they're used to bringing it earlier, changing the cadence. And so, you know, the past few years, um, you know, retailers, particularly in in the UK, have felt the pressure of having to respond to this different change and surge in traffic and performance issues on websites and the fulfillment challenges and, um, you know, are are better placed than previous years from just learning the hard way to, you know, get those fulfillment cadences correct and um, having backup plans in terms of a mix of different carrier partners they're working with so that when one gets, you know, overloaded, they can, you know, flex and, and switch between partners to keep that, those orders and deliveries uh, promises um, um, up to date. Um, but also the fact that, you know, more and more of these sales are coming on digital channels and mobile um, across Europe and in the U.K., and so that's putting a lot more pressure on retailers to really have their performance ready on mobile devices and think about their mobile experiences um, and how those connect both in terms of online purchasing and, and home deliveries, but also in-store uh, purchasing and shopping experiences through the holidays. And so both of you had a facet of timing in your answer, and retailers have, have, have worked hard to move Christmas or holiday shopping forward. 
and it's almost we're moving towards Christmas in April if we just continue this dynamic. Has this had the net effect of increasing overall sales or simply smoothing it out and maybe even to your point, Suchrita, getting it so there's less late time pressure on fulfillment so you have less dissatisfaction at the end of the game? So in the U.S., um, there are two things. One is that e-commerce is, in the month of November and December, 20% of overall retail sales. That is a higher concentration of online penetration versus the other 10 months of the year. Um, So retailers, for better or for worse, have really, really leaned into promotions like Cyber Week and Black Friday um, online, and it has um, paid off. Um, Well, it's paid off from if if you consider that high penetration a good thing. Um, in many ways, you just have delay of gratification in the months of September and October where people are like, you know what, I'm not going to buy that toaster oven because I know it's going to be on sale in November. Um, so you do absolutely get some of that effect. Um, the other piece that is important to, to call out is that at this point in time, only a third of those November-December sales are happening in the month of December. Um, two-thirds are actually happening in um, much of November. So I think that that's, um, that's, that's a pretty amazing um, stat is that, you know, these sales are what push so much of the activity forward and um, it has conditioned shoppers to behave very differently. A lot of that shopping is shopping for self. Um, you know, it's these big purchases that you um, know that you have an eye on and you just want to make sure that you're getting the most value for your money that you can. I'd say that it's a similar context, you know, in, in Europe, um, but for slightly different reasons. I think, you know, it's it's a new phenomenon to push, you know, Christmas shopping earlier because of these sales events and sales days. So you're seeing retailers at, across Europe trying different tactics of, you know, spreading out those sales volumes and managing um, sales events in different ways. So instead of focusing on one specific day, like Black Friday being a phenomenon here, they're creating those cyber weeks or several weeks of offers that are either on rotation or managed and time limited so that they are allocating specific products to that um, and also managing the flow of, of orders and sales um, so that they can you know, manage their, their product inventory but also that, that fulfillment cycle better. Um, and you know, but they're dealing with these two spikes in the holiday season, one much earlier than than they've ever had to to deal with before, and then a, a relative dip after that sales event until closer to Christmas time, where perhaps there's last minute offers and and the the mad rush to perhaps add sales or get rid of stock and and um, do that last minute you know Christmas shopping. So we have referenced you know online shopping. But how does mobile, and my assumption is the numbers that you've referenced, both Suchrita and Michelle, and kind of wrap mobile into that quote-unquote online number, how is the mobile experience affecting sales or um, these sort of moments in time where there's concentration of buying occurring? Well, I think, you know, in in Europe we're seeing, um, you know, speaking to other partners and, and, you know, like Adobe or Creteo are looking at sales traffic and, and, sorry, traffic and sales on, you know, digital devices and mobile specifically, there are much larger volumes um, happening across the holiday season. And then if you look at timings, it's about the, the early morning or evening uh, browsing and, and, and shopping. 
Um, so it really is the, the connecting the dots between um, you know, points at which they're, they're making a decision to, to select something and purchase it. Um, but also, you know, the proportion of mobile spend is just much more concentrated and higher than it is at other times in the year. I know that um, the UK Retail Association, IMRG, um, said that in 2017, 39% of all online spend on Black Friday was from smartphones. So it really right. is much more of a, a significant touch point when it comes to the holiday season. Yeah, and that's um, uh, what I'd um, just uh, to, to piggyback a little bit on that. Um, what we've known, um, even from the days of flash sale sites and, and daily deals, is that um, the mobile device, they, it is really made for those kinds of limited time offers um, because the, those kinds of offers are time sensitive and um, you just need to buy it wherever you are right now. And um, the mobile device is why you'll, because of that um, sense of urgency, you'll see a higher concentration of sales happening on mobile devices during those times. But in general, um, to reinforce Michelle's point, I mean, what you end up with is continued abysmal mobile conversion rates, um, just because consumers typically will um, choose to transact on a desktop if given the choice between the two devices. And one of the pieces that, um, that I actually authored um, uh, several months ago was um, some very strange data that actually came from Adobe and um, our state of retailing online research with the National Retail Federation that seemed to suggest that um, that, that uh, the percent of sales, the penetration of overall sales coming from mobile devices, um, particularly smartphones, was stabilizing. And um, that's very different than um, some of the trends that obviously we've seen over the last several years where mobile commerce has continued to have grown. And um, it raises the question, um, have we essentially hit the peak of mobile commerce? And what that means is that, um, you know, you're – you just have different segments of consumers. You have your store shoppers, you have your desktop shoppers, you have your mobile shoppers. Could that be a comment on the actual experience of the mobile app or, or site? That, that is the billion-dollar question. Is it low because the experience is bad, um, you know, or is it low for, you know, for some other reason just because consumers, um, you know, would just rather prefer to purchase elsewhere? So, you know, is it, is it you know, are, are we ever going to completely change the equation? Um, there, there are some points of friction um, that, that we can remove. Um, um, you know, payment still is a point of friction. You, that may be a factor, but, you know, I mean, retailers have optimized their sites. I mean, a lot of them are investing in progressive web apps now. The sites look pretty decent, as decent as they could look on a mobile device. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they've, you know, reduced a lot of fields and checkout. And, you know, we're still, um, you know, kind of having a lot of consumers prefer that desktop experience. Michelle, do you see some mm -hmm. similar um, phenomenon in, uh, over in the U.K. or other parts of Europe? Yeah, I say, well, actually, we were just um, finishing up the new um, mobile app retail wave assessments 
Um, so it's quite a timely conversation to have. But you know, looking across a set of European retailers, um, both their, their websites and their apps, I'd say that you know it's probably a slightly behind maybe the, the U.S. Um, counterparts. But you know, they're starting to, as you say, look at their mobile experience, remove fields, you know, make it you know reduce the the clicks needed to to purchase, and you know, all that they could possibly do to to make a, a mobile experience you know, shoppable um, and, and easy compared to, the, you know, the larger screen. But there's also an, an element of this that, you know, it's that looking at mobile and how much they can increase the conversion rates, but also how the mobile plays into the experiences in store and the overall engagement with the retailer that, you know, you're seeing a lot more of focus on search and, uh, product visuals and product detail information and, you know, barcode scans or QR code scans so that they can, you know, go in store and access the, that specific product detail and ratings and reviews on their phone very easily. So it's that connected experience in a store context, which then begs the question of, you know, should we really be evaluating mobile experiences based on, you know, the relative conversion rates we can get from, from apps and sites? versus the, the influence it has on, you know, overall shopping behavior, particularly in the holiday season where, you know, that quick information and access and is, you know, more important in the context of a stressed consumer with a, a time-limited, um, you know, objective. I want to go to purpose because right now the vast majority of sales happens in store. And even in your 20% number you give earlier, that's still up 80% is happening in store. And, and then if you look at the role of mobile, does it really go to purpose, meaning are they attempting to actually convert in mobile or are they getting more clever by saying actually mobile serves as the gateway either to the digital transaction or to the in-store transaction and I'm going to actually guide the customer through that using mobile. So mobile is, is not for the conversion but actually for the next step of the journey. Have they got to that design thinking? Absolutely have. I would argue that um, some of the best mobile experiences are companies like Target or Walmart. Um, Home Depot has a pretty good mobile experience. I mean, these are companies that have absolutely all focused um, almost, um, well, I would say it seems that a heavy part of their mobile focus is on the store experience. So it's everything from being able to um, auto-sense where, um, you know, what's the closest store, what inventory is where in that store. Um, Target, of course, does a great job with pushing promotions through cartwheel and, um, you know, kind of driving transactions in-store as well as encouraging shoppers to add things to the cart that they may not have thought of adding before. I mean, this is, you know, this, that's, that's marketing gold, right? So, um, so yeah, there are companies that have, um, have embarked on this and written a fairly good playbook on um, driving cross-channel behavior. Uh, is it widely adopted? Um, I would say no. Um, with any omni-channel initiative, um, it's the most, you know, the most mature ones, like buy online, return in store, like that should be like 101 of e-commerce, right? Um, not even all retailers have that. So it, it's a work in progress. And, and what, is the, what is your take on the idea that Amazon and Google still have an outsized influence on the early parts of discovery, especially through search? What is your take on, on retailers' ability to either effectively influence that part of the journey or 
to try to grab more eyeballs from from their perspective as to as to be the point of origin for discovery. That's a fascinating question. When we actually have in um, Forrester research through our consumer lifecycle survey, um, questions for different categories on what influences shoppers in the discovery process and in the engage process. And um, one of the fascinating insights is that a very significant percent of consumers still um, find that point of influence in the physical store or on retailer websites. Um, and it's not always number one, although often it is. Um, so the store is still very, very powerful and influential. And I think that we sometimes lose sight of that, to your point, with all of the media and the hype around you know, Amazon and Google. Um, one of the pieces I think is incredibly important to keep in mind is that this market is fluid and dynamic. Several years ago, Google was at the top of the world. Google has lost a lot of share with customers, in large part because Amazon has picked up its game with respect to being a search destination. Um, but also, Google has not had a great vision with respect to shopping either. Retailers are a lower part of their overall revenue than they were in the past, and they're focusing on other industries, and they've taken their eye off of the retail ball. Um, so what you've seen is you know, kind of Amazon coming in um, and and taking some of that that um that share away. But, you know, kind of whether or not Amazon is able to retain that in the long term, um, you know, it's still, I think, up in the air. I mean, retailers can, you know, it's, it's up to them to execute really well and to have exclusive products that shoppers want to buy. A large part of the reason that Amazon is dominating search is because their product content is really strong and they have been obsessively focused on um, breadth of selection. And and um, if that diminishes in any way, and there's a lot of talk of everything from antitrust regulation to so many articles written about the amount of counterfeit product on Amazon now or the amount of, um, you know, questionable reviews and questionable content on the site. I mean, it really, um, you know, kind of forces them to perhaps cut back on, on some of that content in order to improve the integrity of, of what's there. Um, that loss of integrity is absolutely what could push consumers back to, you know, kind of going back to retailers, which is where they discovered product in the first place, you know, years ago. Absolutely. I think um, from a European context, that's you know, very similar, but, you know, with, with specific nuances, because, you know, just in the past few years, I've, I've seen Amazon become much more of a, a question from a European retailer's perspective. I think it's been, you know, the, the focus of a of, U.S. retailers questions for a very long time, um, but the dominance in in Europe is is increasing, and certainly over the past at least you know five to six years, Amazon is you know one of the top resources when it comes to product information and product research across you know m the vast majority of European markets. But having said that, it's not everywhere. So somewhere like the Netherlands. Bull.com is, you know, the, the version of Amazon that they have. And Amazon only entered the market in 2014, I believe, and, you know, doesn't have a, a major hold on that particular market. So there are nuances and differences across different countries in terms of that, that role that Amazon plays. But certainly in the markets that, you know, it has a large influence, like, like the U.K., um, there is that role of Amazon being 
a search resource and also a convenience factor. If it's on Amazon, I know that I'm going to get, we'd have the delivery options or have the access and the speed. But when it comes to actual product discovery or inspiration, you know, I'd argue I'm less likely to go there because it's not really designed for, you know, comparison of, well, the feature comparison, but not real deep search or experiential, um, you know, browsing compared to, you know, more of a, a brand site or, or something that has a lot more visual um, and, you know, content and editorial. Um, and actually, we've seen that in our customer experience index, you know, the Amazon score for the UK has dropped um, in the past few years and really down to a reduced level of emotional connections with consumers because they have the convenience factor and, the, you know, the frequency because they have that breadth of assortment and, and categories but, you know, that emotional connection and the, the deep you know, discovery and, and affinity isn't necessarily there in terms of every type of purchasing you're going to be doing or every context of shopping. And so. that's an excellent point. I just want to point out, like, because that same phenomenon with the CX index and Amazon's declining um, position is evident in the U.S. index as well. And, um, you know, kind of where the red flag comes to me is, is Amazon, you know, sort of facing a lot of the challenges that Walmart has over the years. And so one of the other outputs of the CX index was the commentary that the in-store experience is not outstanding. And, of course, you have the added problem of, there's simply more shoppers around you. So you have congestion at the checkout lines. You just have stores that are busier. And there's been a whole lot of conversation about digital. But I wanted to focus the attention a little bit on the on the employee in the store and very specifically the thinking about how well paid they are, who they are, and what does that do to basket size or repeat visits or to your prior point, Sutri, that would inspire new ideas to extend the the initial basket size. What is happening in the store as it specifically relates to the employee to make the store a, a sort of an economic engine? <laughs> well, they're they're cutting back on store associates, and um, you know they they often. I mean, and, and the hard hard thing, Victor, with retail is that because it's so seasonal, you get a lot of seasonal employees. So it's you know people who come in and out. They may not be committed to the brand. Um, and, and uh, it, you know, so on the one hand, you have wages going up, um, particularly in, in urban markets, on, in coastal markets, um, and, and that's mandated by law. Um, and, but you have these payroll budgets, so what that means is that hours will get cut back or people get asked to do more. Um, but there's no question that um, store associates um, often are not trained appropriately. Um, they, you know, they may or may not feel a connection to the brand and may or may not really even be held accountable to how they engage with, with customers. Now, there are exceptions to that. I mean, I look at um, Trader Joe's as one of the gold standards of how do you treat people in a store and how do you train employees. Um, the Apple stores are also excellent in that regard. Nordstrom, I mean, there are a number of stores that do do it well and don't have this problem that, that, that you're describing. Um, but they're, the vast majority, um, you know, do have the problem. And, um, 
you know, I mean, how do you how do you address that? Um, there are, you know, this is where you know, kind of, if you keep cutting back budgets um, and you keep cutting back on training, and you know, you continue to have high turnover in your store associates, um, you know, you're not setting yourself up for great a great customer experience in the physical store. Um, so you are going to have to rely more on technology to meet the gaps. Um, consumers at least are, are comfortable using um, their phones to serve themselves. So if they have a question, they now know in many cases that they can actually um, find that answer themselves versus asking a store associate, which is, which is actually a good thing. You can control more of the information flow that way, and, um, you know, it's, it's a very highly scalable solution to provide information like, you know, where, where an item may be or, you know, where's the bathroom in a, in a physical store, um, you know, digitally versus having a, a human respond to that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, kind of there's, there's, you know, a period of time, and I feel like we're in that time now where there's an adjustment period where these investments need to be made. And um, for many merchants, it's only happening now. I mean, this idea of having store-level inventory of where in an aisle a particular item is, is really only a few years old, and it's not even ubiquitous. Um, so until it is ubiquitous, and it does take time, and it takes an operations process that can be several years in the making from an auditing standpoint, um, you, you know, we're, we're going to continue, I think, to see some, some pretty bad CX scores for physical stores. And what you said makes absolute sense and at the same time absolutely makes no sense at all. I mean, the holiday period is the most consequential period for retailers. And the in-store experience is where the transaction mostly takes place. And as you said early on, they know this drill. They, they've been through this drill. This is, this is routine for them. And not only that, but they, they've managed to bring inventory forward to overcome some of the tariff pressure. I mean, th- these are very savvy decisions made. You know you're bringing these employees in, and you know the employees have a, an effect on the experience thusly, the basket size, the whole bit. What happens to this equation that I'm missing? The one point to, to throw in there is that you know, the expectations of the customer have changed. They're elevated. They're coming into the store with you know, often more information and more understanding of the products they're interested in or their objectives than any store associate can, is able to match that doesn't have you know, a digital device that's giving them access to the same information or resources. And so throwing bodies into the store you know, only does so much in terms of supporting, you know, new customer expectations of that store experience and what they're looking for. And they'll also, you know, to Sutrader's point, bringing technology in the store, um, we're just finishing up a, a evaluations for the latest um, digital store assessments that we've, we've looked across um, retailers in Europe and the U.S. doing a a criteria and assessment of what digital tools are available from you know, customers' own devices and smartphones and what associate digital tools are available if a customer walks into the store, what, what is it that they can see and how are the associates helping them. And, you know, particularly in Europe we're seeing, or I'm seeing compared to previous years, more instances of a device in the associate's hand or someone in the store or those instances where, you know, if I want to check that, that inventory is available, the person's not leaving my side. They're either, you know, connecting to somebody who has the device in hand or can just quickly look at that um, or, you know, request something from the back, again, without leaving my side so they're not 
leaving me to to wait and ultimately give up and and leave the store, which certainly does happen (laughs) for, you know, a lot of, of different retailers that, you know, perhaps haven't really looked at how, you know, digital technology might be able to help some of those processes and customer experiences. Yeah, I would extend um, on on what Michelle just said by saying retailers have a uh, human resources culture problem. Um, they fundamentally view um, their store associates as replaceable and disposable, and um, therein lies the fundamental problem. I worked at Toys R Us during a holiday season many years ago, um, before long before bankruptcy. But um, you know what I saw was appalling. Um, there would be, and I was in charge of, of many things, including hiring seasonal help. My seasonal help interviews would last five to ten minutes, and it would basically be comprised of, are you able to come in tomorrow, and are you willing to work for minimum wage? If your answer was yes and yes, you were hired, and you would learn on the job. And it was, that's crazy. How can you possibly expect, um, you know, to have any kind of a decent customer experience when that's your bar? And, uh, you know, but it requires a completely, to change that you would need to have such a different approach. You would, you need to promote from within. You need to nurture people. You need to, um, you know, train them appropriately and have a plan for their careers. And that's an investment. And um, that's not an investment that very many retailers, with some exceptions, like a Trader Joe's that I pointed out earlier, um, it's, it's an investment that most are just not willing to make. And do you think it's worth it? You you would point at Trader Joe's, we'll point at the Apple stores, and I'm sure there's many other examples where someone said that incremental investment or that that better touch creates a better economic outcome. Is that one of the big ahas coming out of this because there's been so much attention paid to digital, and yet here comes the human equation, which has got to be formidable in terms of what the consumer actually does or does not do? Well, I think that you have to figure out how to operationalize it well. Like at a conceptual level, it should. Kip Tyndall, who um, you, you know was um, who has evangelized this at the con- Container Store for for years, has said that you know kind of well-paid store associates are three times more effective than poorly paid ones. And you can just have more, you can do more with less. And that's how you are able to manage payroll, is that a great store associate can just do a lot of things. Um, So, you know, but you need to, you know, kind of really, really understand, you know, what all the functions are, what can be cross-trained, who can do what, and you need to have um, a flow in. And you you need to have um, labor force management tools and scheduling tools and technology to help support those store associates so that they can do the best job that they can. And, you know, there are communication vehicles to push down from corporate what the individual store needs to do. You know, and retailers don't even have all of those pieces in place. So just paying store associates more isn't going to solve it. You need to have a plan for how you're going to actually get the ROI on that investment. I want to bring our attention to fulfillment. I think it was brought up earlier in this discussion. And it's just a point of curiosity that I have, which is I go to a retailer site. I go first maybe to Google or Amazon. I eventually lend the retailers and I want it delivered. And the delivery is done by a third party. Let's call it shipped for a second. So I, as the consumer, 
don't know necessarily who to give credit to. Do I give credit to the search? So I think Amazon did a nice job. The retailer, which supplied the transaction, the product, or the, the person who came up my driveway and gave it to me and sort of created that great moment of adrenaline. Is the third-party fulfillment, is there a trap there that the retailer is not going to get full credit for that delivery? Well, I, I think that what we're going to see moving forward is all kinds of um, just, uh, you know, kind of differences in where inventory sits, who features it, um, you know, who delivers it, and, um, you know, where it's shipped from. And we will see more of a fluid approach. Like in the future, um, you know, I mean, there's no reason that if, um, you know, for local inventory, if you're purchasing on the Target.com site and another retailer carries that merchandise that you want to buy, um, that, you know, that item couldn't be delivered from that merchant. Um, and, you know, it, 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 everyone's okay with that that type of a transaction. Um, it, you know, I think that you're already seeing a lot of that with, with the, the marketplace model where, um, you know, essentially, you know, companies are just fulfilling and, you know, Amazon is, is the face of that. Um, you know, so if you're going to go down that path with Amazon, why not go down that path with everyone else as well um, who's willing to, to, to be that, um, you know, that face to the customer and, you know, some of the biggest players like a Walmart and a Target are well suited to to be that face. Um, so so I think there will be more fluidity. Um, you know there may also be you know some some companies that absolutely resist because they want to own the end to end customer experience. Um, but uh, but I think that you know kind of retailers really um, you know have no choice but to go into that direction of of fluidity to just maintain sales and market share. I think it's exactly right. I'm seeing, um, you know, particularly in, in the UK where there's perhaps more than, than in the US and, and even other uh, parts of Europe, more of a, a multi-carrier strategy. So any one retailer might have, you know, several different companies that, that they'll work with um, for delivery and, and fulfillment, um, you know, depending on the availability and, and just managing supply and demand. But within that, there are particular, there's a lot more focus on um, how that partnership affects the overall customer experience so that you are holding each other accountable um, for, you know, the, the impact and, and the, the delivery. And that's, that's part of the, you know, the SLAs. It's part of the evaluation of, of revenue. It's, it's, part of, it's more part of the discussion in terms of, you know, who owns the customer experience will actually no one part of that experience is owned by any one organization, really. It's But in the perception of the customer, they're buying from that particular brand or retailer. So overall, that is where they'll go to, to say, hey, my delivery hasn't arrived or you know, something's gone wrong in this process. Okay, so as we sit here, it's getting warmer in the southern hemisphere. The leaves are turning in the northern hemisphere, and we all look towards the holidays we're looking at a 4% growth rate overall. And then in, in Europe, I think it's something around 11%. And in US, 13% in terms of digital growth. And retailers are tooling up to sort of win their unfair share of the game. What's the thing that retailers just got to get right as we look at all the different behaviors and journeys that are out there to win in the next three months? In Europe, it's certainly going to be, um, you know, 
getting ready for the the traffic surges and performance issues, certainly because of that, you know, relatively new change in, in holiday patterns um, and and sales volumes across the the holiday season. Right. It is. Um, it's all about the surge, and it is surge from a traffic standpoint, from a marketing and promotional excitement standpoint, from a shipping and fulfillment standpoint. Um, and that's the the hard part is that you during these peak holiday days, you're seeing volume that can be 20 to 30 times what is on any other given day. Um, and that is uh, a challenge that even now retailers struggle to um, to execute against effectively. Well, to Jen and Suchrita and Michelle, let me be the first one to say happy holidays to you. And thank you for your time. <laughs> and to you, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.